The TNT Shop has great gift ideas for your furry family member at TNTradio.live. Bruce DeTorres on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. This is World Stage, exposing the tyrannies and exploring our power with deep dives into history, current events, dangerous trends, and the nature of reality. Before I introduce my guest, I want to talk about a recent post at chrishedges.substack.com. A man and an intellect and a heart and a soul and a compassion that I highly recommend. I've been reading and following him for years, Chris Hedges. And on February 29th, he posted Aaron Bushnell's Divine Violence. I'm just going to read a minute or so of this, not even. Aaron Bushnell, when he placed his cell phone on the ground to set up a live stream and lit himself on fire in front of the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C., resulting in his death, pitted divine violence against radical evil. As an active duty member of the U.S. Air Force, he was part of the vast machinery that sustains the ongoing genocide in Gaza, no less morally culpable than the German soldiers, technocrats, engineers, scientists, and bureaucrats who oiled the apparatus of the Nazi Holocaust. This was a role he could no longer accept. He died for our sins. I highly encourage everybody, after this show, not right now, to go to chrishedges.substack.com and finish reading Aaron Bushnell's Divine Violence. With me this hour is Dr. Kat Lindley, a Croatian-born and American-trained board-certified family physician in Texas with a direct primary care practice. She loves caring for the whole family and seeing the whole family grow. She also became interested in finding solutions to improve America's health care system. She is a fellow of the American College of Osteopathic Family Physicians and is involved with many medical organizations, including globalhealthproject.org, global, global COVID, covidsummit.org, and the American Association of Pharmaceutical Scientists, AAPS. Thank you very much for joining me today, Dr. Lindley. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me today. Well, it's my, it's my honor and pleasure. I'm very interested to learn about, I guess you'd call it, I'll call it activism, correct me, with what you started doing, it seems primarily after COVID and after the injections working through these organizations, and you'll tell me everything else, but I'll invite you to, I guess, kind of, you know, how do you set the table of what you were doing, what did you like about medicine, and what impact COVID had on you, how it transformed your life, and, and what it inspired you to, to be doing now? So actually, before COVID, I realized that the practice of medicine was broken, and that in the United States, we were practicing something I call corporate practice of medicine, which is uh, a lot of physicians have left private practice and then they get employed by uh, large corporations or medical 
schools, medical, you know, associations and things like that. And I think during COVID, we've kind of seen the crisis of what happened because of that. But before COVID, um, I actually left a highly paid position to start my own practice in direct primary care. Um, during Trump's administration, myself and few of my colleagues um, worked actually with uh, the administration to show how if you're transparent in medicine, transparent in the way you practice, the way you charge, you know, the cost and everything like that, the medical side doesn't really cost that much. The cost comes from the pharmaceutical side, from the uh, administration side, from bureaucracy itself. So there was an executive order that President Trump passed that uh, was about transparency in medicine, which said that the hospitals have to put pricing and give it to the patients before the procedures. So patient can actually shop around and decide where they want to have um, these procedures or different things from the hospital. And then kind of when COVID happened, I was already in my own private practice and it allowed me to be more free in the way I practice. Plus, you know, I'm a little different than most doctors. I think differently. It sounds I like... I was you, going to say, were, I don't mean that as a joke, but, you know, I grew up in uh, Croatia, in Yugoslavia, in communism. So I was always very much a person that believes in um, accountability, transparency, truthfulness, and understands the dangers of complying to certain things that don't make sense. Well, then we Americans have a lot to learn from your perspective because... In your short description of what you just described, Dr. Lindley, you well-diagnosed what me as a layperson sees as a catastrophic nightmare of America's healthcare system. So, but to the particulars, how how good was Trump's order requiring transparency? How How almost revolutionary was that? How much did you admire that? Well, you know, a lot of people did not like President Trump's personality, different things that maybe he stood for and things like that. But if you look at his healthcare policies, he was actually very good at that because he understood that free market is what you need in medicine. Competition is good. It's not bad. Because like, like I said, I practice direct primary care. It's a membership model. I don't take insurance. Patients pay my practice is anywhere from $35 to $110 a month, and they have 24-7 access to me. They can text me, call me, come see me in the office. If I'm traveling, I still respond to all my messages. So there is no interruption in care, and they can do it as many times as they need to for this flat fee that they know what it is. And then when it comes to labs, uh, you can actually get them extremely cheap for 2 $3, depending what type of lab you need. Sometimes a little more if you need uh, some specialized labs, but radiology, imaging, MRIs, everything can be done on a cash basis. And President Trump understood that because of his business background. If you make me compete against a physician that's close to me, we both are going to try to bring the prices down and bring the quality up because we are competing for the same person. So I would say that, like, if if people can get beyond 
the image and beyond, you know, whatever they uh, felt that he was trying to say, or, or whatever, I, people need to start looking at certain policies because he totally made sense on healthcare. The, this, how you, how widespread in America, where did you come up with this model or how many others and in how many states, what's your, what's your uh, knowledge or impression about the percentage of doctors who are practicing this, this model, which sounds wonderful to me? Well, this model has been around for, for a while now, 10, 15 years. I'm, I'm not exactly even sure how many. I can tell you that, um, I opened my practice in 2017. I've known about it for several years and I was very resistant to it because I kind of like the idea of, you know, going to work, doing my thing, then going home and not worrying about having the overhead and, you know, your own practice. But because of some circumstances, I decided to uh, open my practice and it's never, uh, it, it was the best decision really of my professional life. Um, the good thing about direct primary care, the family medicine, general medicine side of it has been around for so many years that now specialists are learning how to do it as well. So I don't know if your listeners know, but Dr. Mary Tally Bowden, who is you know very vocal on Twitter and is here in Texas too, she's a ENT specialist and a sleep specialist, and she has a direct care model in Houston. There is also um, Dr. Chris Held in San Antonio who has direct uh, specialty ophthalmology. And both of them are, are actually able to do surgery and have a practice because their prices are transparent. Patient knows exactly how much it is. And uh, it's really a great way of practicing medicine. To give you an idea why this is important, we have to return to private practice of medicine because what happened during COVID only happened because physicians are employed and physicians had to follow the narrative, the, the mandates, and they kind of carry that through to their patients. And that's why there is this huge crisis where trust in medicine is lost. Patients don't regard physicians um, that they have good in their heart for them. So there is a whole new era that we have entered that can be quite dangerous. I'm I am so excited to learn more this exactly from you right now because of the uh horrible experiences that I've had very few I'm very healthy knock on wood for my age but that I've heard others and your model that you're describing sounds like a fantastic remedy here's my question I'm almost shocked well maybe it's not I don't want to assume it's easy how easy is it legally to practice like this? Is there any effort by the big, awful money, pharmaceutical, regulatory powers to block doctors from practicing it in the direct care uh, membership model? It's legal because, um, first of all, you have a contract with the patient directly. If you want to see patients who have Medicare, physician has to opt out of Medicare. Once you opt out of Medicare, you actually cannot return for several years, which in my case doesn't matter. I never want to go back to it. Uh, there are laws that you have to uh, make sure that you abide by. You need to practice uh, according to your uh, state medical board and things like that. But as 
practice itself, it's a totally legal model. I I absolutely understood that it, it's a it's a legal model. I my, I badly phrased my question. Okay. I was I was wondering. Of course, I was wondering. Is it is it are the states keeping it easy to practice like this? I would imagine that the corporate powers are would squeeze the legislatures to squeeze this wonderful model out of existence. How hard is it to practice in this model legally? It's really not difficult. There are maybe some states where you, you need to be aware of the laws within your state to make sure that you're compliant within the state. But in general, the states are not giving us too, too much uh, trouble because other than the payment side of the model, everything else is the same. We practice, we, we practice standard of care and take good care of our patients. There's also several legislators who really understand this model well one of them is chip roy he's texas 21 so he's san antonio area uh senator ted cruz as well and they've pushed several uh pieces of legislature to actually expand the use of health savings accounts for patients so they can uh, get kind of you know more um services for their money and things like that so honestly i think this is the way of future for those physicians who want to practice honest medicine and who want, who want to remain true to their values and traditions. And is there a percentage that comes to mind in terms of, let's say, cost savings to, to patients? Is there an average amount that's uh, that they save by going to such a doctor or such a practice? So... On top of my head, I can give you an example for myself, for my, um, I think it was my son. He was playing baseball and, you know, pitcher hit his nose, he broke his nose. So um, if I went the insurance route and did the workup for him, we would have paid about $2,500 um, a deductible for the MRI. And instead of doing that, I just paid cash. It was 350 so that was just like one little piece of uh, savings we had, right? And there are many incidences of this. I have a friend of mine who, who's been doing this for a long time in Kansas. Uh, and um, this was years ago. One of his patients needed chemotherapeutic medication. Um, and Walgreens and CVS were going to charge about $2,000. One was $1,900, the other one was $2,000 or something along those lines. He was able to get her medicine directly uh, for less than $20. So the reason why it's important to kind of, you know, leave this whole system and try to new, learn new ways is because you definitely can save patients a lot of money. And again, I have to go back to Trump. That's what he really understood. Uh, there are several uh, states where physicians can dispense medication directly to the patient. So what physicians do, they'll order the medicine from the um, meds or whatever retailer we have, and then um, they'll you know get the medicine and some and they'll charge just the cost of the actual uh, bottle and the label, and then uh, the patient pays pretty much the cost of medicine. And that's one of the huge ways you can save money. It's really, I've been in Texas for 
while now, and we've been trying to pass this dispensing bill for the past three sessions. We haven't been able. There's, I believe, four or five states who don't have that bill, but every other state has it, and you can save patients huge amount of money. Do doctors make much less or about the same? What's the difference to the doctors? Um, the reason you do the membership type uh, practice is because then you have a certain number of members and you know what your um, you know, income is going to be for the month. You know your overhead and stuff like that. So, so from that business point of view, it makes it easy. I would say it depends on the doctor how entrepreneur-rich they are. I'm a terrible business person. I'll never get rich doing what I do, but I'm really happy doing what I do. Does a does a, have you do you do you not accept insurance or do you do accept uh, insurance? No, so I don't accept any insurance. But if patient has for me, so for me they have to pay that membership monthly fee. But if the patient has insurance, you can use the insurance to order labs, radiology. Uh, medication, whatever they need. So everything outside of our relationship can be done through the insurance. Right. And then the patient deals with their insurance for that provider of those services outside your office. Well, they don't have to deal on their own, right? That's why they have me to make sure everything's done. But yeah. So if they need, like, let's say they need surgery, uh, I can refer them to surgeon. Surgeon decides they need the surgery. They go to the hospital. That whole thing is paid for. Okay. And do you, by not dealing with insurance yourself, is that a paperwork burden of, of unbelievable relief to not have to account to the insurance companies? It is. In my practice, there is only me. There is no uh, receptionist. There is no nurse. There is no person who deals with uh, prior authorizations. There is no one else. So, yes, it's a huge relief from the overhead. And um, it makes my life much easier. You're going to make my life a lot easier as I go forward learning more about this. With me is Dr. Kat Lindley, really exciting me with what I'm learning about direct primary care practices. And now here is important information from today's news talk, TNT. TNT's Jason Allborn. Donald Trump today defeated Nikki Haley in South Carolina, some 61 to 39% in that primary event there, which almost secures him the obviousness that he's going to be the Republican candidate. And Nikki Haley, as many might know, was the governor of South Carolina and she couldn't hold that state. And yet she persists in hanging in there, almost white-anting the system and just being one of those hands that looks like she's representing the globalist interests rather than the interests of the people who are supporting the Republicans, which is anything but pro-establishment. Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk. TNT. The light is Britain's far-right conspiracy theory paper spreading hate and vicious lies. No, that's what the BBC say. The Light is the only national newspaper bringing you the real news and informed opinion on what's really going on today. You can subscribe, order copies, submit articles, and read back issues on our website, thelightpaper.co.uk, and see for yourself why the establishment are so worried about the uncensored truth getting out to people every month. The Light Paper. Not for right, just right so far. thelightpaper.co.uk
It sounds pretty good. It sounds real, dude. Not bad, huh? This is today's News Talk Radio, TNT. If you love a good documentary, then you will love our special screenings, uninterrupted cinema features, some of the latest or notable documentaries from the world's best filmmakers. Check out TNT's website for more information. Weekends are better when you spend it with us at TNT. Dr. Kat Lindley, I am... Oh, my goodness. I am just blown away by what you're uh, telling me about the difference with the, the direct primary care practice model, membership model, in your state, Texas, or around the country. Do you have a feel for the percentage of all primary care doctors who are corporate captured in a, in a corporate business model as employees versus the number or percentage that might be practicing this membership direct primary care kind of practice? I don't, but there is a website called dpcfrontier.com and you can click on there and you see the map of the United States and then you see the different practices that registered with them. Hmm. There is uh, probably, I know a few years back there was about 1,000 practices. Now it's uh, probably a whole lot more. A nice thing is, as we speak to more medical students and residents, there is definitely desire to do this type of practice. Um, you know, the, the life in, in this corporate model can be very difficult. You know, they, uh, there's a lot of, you have a certain number of patients you have to see, you have, you know, requirements, RVUs you have to meet and all that. Um, the EMR can be very unfriendly, clicking things that don't really matter. And the satisfaction between patient and physician, it keeps on going down. The nice thing about being able to doing direct primary care is you have as much time as you need. To, so this is kind of a little bit of a funny story. The first time I, when I opened my practice, first of all, I opened it with $5,000. So you don't have to be rich, have a lot of money to go into this. I um, found a place I wanted to rent. Uh, some doctors actually started at their own home and then they grow from there, right? But I decided I wanted to rent a place. I found a place to rent. I bought a table on Craigslist. I had my doctor back from medical school that had everything I need. And um, I opened my doors, right? I bought a couple of things for the waiting room and things like that. And the first couple of days, I, I would go to the office, you know, 8 o'clock in the morning after I dropped the kids off, and I was like, doing nothing. And then it dawned on me that, you know, and then patients started uh, signing up and stuff like that. It dawned on me, I don't have to be in my office if I don't have patients. So it's really nice because you set your own schedule, um, and you have as much time as you need to spend with the patients. There is no expectations. I have to see this many people in, in this many hours, spend this much time with them. They can only tell me one or two things because I don't have time for anything else. Um, so, you know, the patients become your family, your friends. And I can tell you, I do travel a lot. You know, I speak against the World Health Organization and different things. So, most of my patients are my friends on Facebook and sometimes I like, you know, I'm here or something. They they actually always 
protect me. If they know I'm traveling, they're like, well, I didn't want to bother you with that. So they'll text me, you know, uh, and just say, oh, I just needed this. It, it's a totally different way of practice. It's almost kind of returning back to the roots of medicine, the way um, the small practices used to be. And there is huge satisfaction on the side of the patient and physician. Would you repeat slowly so I can write it down the website you gave where folks can find such practices, please? Yes. Let me do it with you just to make sure I'm telling you the correctly by DPC Frontier. D, what are those letters? D is in dog? D, yeah, D dog, P like Paul, C like cat. Frontier.com, yes. I believe. Let me see. DPC what? Frontier. Frontier. That's my accent, yes. Well, we're getting there. Frontierprobably.com, right? Yes, I wow. believe it. I have the impression that, thank you, that too many doctors seem to pres just quickly prescribe drugs as the solution to things beyond the ability to really delve deep into what's wrong with the patient. Along the lines of the note in your intro about treating the whole person or the whole family, am I right or wrong in that impression that too many doctors, and I'm gonna try to really hear like and, and have an open mind, do you have, do you, is, are doctors pressured by pharmaceutical companies or pharmaceutical reps or even their training and their continuing education, their retraining and retraining to quickly diagnose things for drugs? And is there, is, how, what's that conundrum like for a doctor? What is that problem like for a doctor if they wanted to? understand symptoms inside the patient's entire health or are they overly especially in america trained to well there's a pill for that you understand you, you understand what i'm asking i do it's a little bit difficult for me to answer that because i went to osteopathic medical school um and actually chose to go the do route instead of md route the principles of osteopathic medicine is that you treat body, mind, and spirit. So from the beginning of medical school, we were taught to look at the illness a little bit different. Um, I trained in um, Florida, and I did a lot of my rotations at the University of Miami, uh, the Jackson Memorial Hospital system, which is a huge system. And I do remember attending kind of favoring the, the way I would approach it because a lot of times the MD students would just kind of order labs and x-rays even before they saw the patient while I would go in, spend time with the patient, figure things out and then decide what I want. So, you know, I do think that our specifically allopathic world does tend to go a little bit more you have this, there is a pill for that. Let's, you know, give you this, try it and see if you get better. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm also from Mediterranean and we tend to really look at the lifestyle a lot. You know, you are what you eat, what you do, how you sleep and things like that. So there's a little bit different way I'll, I'll look at things. I, I wouldn't say necessarily that pharma influence 
you know, sure, like when new drugs would come on, on, on the market, the pharma would come to the offices and talk how great it is and stuff like that. But I think that kind of way of de-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective. Mark Marano was certainly a national treasure, at least he is in my opinion. We're blessed to have him here on TNT. Anyway, he runs Climate Depot. And Climate Depot is a great place to go if you want to really take a look at some of the lunacy that's going on here. I warn you, it's probably going to get your blood pressure up. Okay, CNN came out with a blog, How EVs Became Such a Massive Disappointment. Now, one of my favorite movies is Casablanca. And I love the scene at the end where the police captain comes in and claims he's shocked that gambling is going on in this particular joint that was being run by Rick, right? AKA Humphrey Bogart. Well, remember the words, I'm shocked, shocked that this is going on. Well, when I look at this CNN headline, how EVs became such a massive disappointment, I'm shocked, shocked that this is happening. Who wants to buy a car unless you're gonna putter around your house and it's like a glorified golf cart. I should say your neighborhood rather than the house. Who wants to buy that? Its battery is so heavy that it immediately puts excess pressure on the front of the car and your braking system. That's the first thing. Second thing, where are all the parts coming from? How are we making all these batteries? Just how are you going to put up with having to take 40 minutes to charge your car? What happens if you happen to live where it's cold and believe it or not, despite global warming, much of the world is cold in their winter season. So I'm shocked, shocked that CNN has found out about all this. If you go to Climate Depot, you can read about it. This is TNT Climate and Weather Watchdog meteorologist Joe Bastardi asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you've got. Bruce DeTorres on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Dr. Cat is... Osteopathy synonymous with homeopathy? No, no. Osteopathic medicine is um, we get exactly the same training as our as our allopathic colleagues. The only thing that we are taught from the beginning is osteopath osteopathic manipulation. Now, osteopathic manipulation is probably the easiest way to explain it. Very similar to what chiropractors do, but they tend to do just certain uh, techniques while we tend to do a whole lot more techniques because the idea is that um, the musculoskeletal system will actually manifest some aspects of your disease so for example if you're having chronic heart issues you will have some changes in the musculature and the vertebrae on the level of t5 to t9 so, um, you know, someone obviously that has heart disease or, or things, they need to be on medication, but you can also, by palpating and looking at their musculoskeletal system, see that they have these changes and sometimes just really releasing the spasm of the muscles can give a little relief. But again, they still need their medicine. I'm just It's thrilled. just a tool in my toolbox, right? You know, I just love to learn, and mercifully, I've been very uh, healthy up to this point in my life, and I've read about homeopathy uh, versus the allopathic approach. I never knew what osteopathic medicine was. I thought it was something about bones or something, 
And it's just thrilling to think and to know and learn what you just explained about osteopathic practice uh, versus allopathic. I, I want to ask you now about the organizations that you're part of, the organization I think you founded, the um, COVID, Global COVID Summit. Do you have any concluding uh, comments, Dr. Cat, about the things we've just been talking about before we switch gears and talk about your organizations, your activism, and the education that you're trying to, you know, the information you're trying to bring to the world? Are we ready to talk about those things? Sure. The only thing I would like to say on the subject we talked about um, during these past several years, there was a loss of trust in medicine. There's a loss in physicians. And um, my hope is that we will not abandon the traditional uh, medicine altogether. There is a better way of practicing it. There is a way of looking, like I said, body, mind and spirit. But mm. we need to work hard on restoring the trust that was lost. You just summed up much of the four-year nightmare that the world has experienced in the name of COVID. So please teach me what you turned yourself to do to re restore that trust and to address the things that betrayed that trust and the remedies and the information you're working so hard to push out there through the global health uh, project.org and the global COVID summit.org. Talk to me about all that, please. So global COVID summit is an organization that was actually formed by Dr. Richard Urso, Dr. Ryan Cole, John Littell, Brian Tyson, Dr. Malone, several physicians. I came on a little bit later. I knew of all of them. I was kind of friends with Richard Urso. But during that first period of time, you know, I was in private practice and I was just taking care of my patients. I didn't understand when they told us, uh, tell patients to stay home, don't see them in the office. And then when they can't breathe, tell them to go to the ER. That aspect never made sense. So I ignored it. I did my thing, you know, did my job and uh, tried to help as many people as I could. And then, you know, as uh, Richard and others have been talking about uh, what's going on, I don't know if I got in touch with him or he got in touch with me. It's been a while now, but I knew that I had a different story to tell. And uh, in a sense, um, you know, I grew up in communism. I grew up in Yugoslavia. And I really read the play early on. So, you know... There was fear going around. The numbers were going up on the ticker, you know, the, the photos from China, New York, everything had a role. And then they said, well, if you do this, if you wear a mask, if you stand six feet apart, um, you can do that. And then they had the vaccines and the vaccines were like, well, if you get the vaccine, you can travel, you can go visit your relative, you will protect the grandma. And then people kind of started resisting that. And they said, well, if you don't get it, you're going to lose your job. And someone like me, like me understands that play because this type of a totalitarian play, this type of a play that people who have grew up in communism have seen or different regimes like that. And when I started speaking out with Richard and others, I spoke about the mandates because I felt 
that mandate is at the core of what's going on. Because if a country like United States can allow to the government to mandate a population to do something they don't want to do so that they can have a job to feed their family, it's not a free country anymore. And I think people kind of just kind of, they talk about mandates, but they don't understand this essential message I'm saying. If your government has allowed and has asked you to do something that you don't want to do, and if you don't do it, you're going to lose your job, you are not free. This is not free United States of America. And that's kind of where I started speaking out. And I started getting involved globally because I understood this is a global play. This was not United States. This was not UK, France. This was all of us together. They're being subjected to this totalitarian play around the world. Was the Croatia you grew up in literally a, a communist government and country? So, yes, when I was born, it was still Yugoslavia, and Josip uh, Rostito was the president. He died in the 80s. Then after him, for about 10 years, Yugoslavia was trying to get, you know, their um, act together. They couldn't, and it ended up in civil war. So I left. Um, it was still Yugoslavia when I left. One day before split, I'm from Dalmatian coast, was attacked. And I left to live in Italy for five years. I worked as a nanny. I saved money. I eventually made it to the States. Went to college here, medical school, and I understand the American dream. You know, people read about the American dream. I actually lived it and still live it. And that's why story from someone like me, it's extremely important because I know how much we stand to lose. And I would actually say it's not that we stand to lose it. We've already lost it. People are just aware, not aware that we have. I, I completely agree with your diagnosis of America today and the society and kind of the two camps, those who believe authority, believe the shots are safe and effective, wear a mask the split second, it's casually recommended, and they are not outraged at the mandates and the loss of freedom. And then those who work hard, like I'm saying everyone on TNT, uh, just obsessed and horrified at the at the loss of freedom. What are the first uh, things you you teach or steer people to when you give at these with these organizations? It sounds like you're going to conferences. You're something of a keynote speaker. Do I have that right? I would say I'm a keynote speaker, but I've kind of, um, for the lack of the better word, specialized in the World Health Organization because I do see them as an imminent threat to freedom around the world with the amendments to international health regulation and pandemic treaty they're trying to negotiate. Um, you know, if you read their PR or if you listen to them speaking, you would think it's a good idea. We need to be prepared if something happens along the way. But what people don't realize is they are trying to change the role they had with the member countries. In the past, they were more of a, you know, ad, ad, advising organization. They would Doctor, say, you know, this is... Dr. Kat, let me, let me interject 
just to reintroduce you, Dr. Kat Lindley talking about the uh, crisis of the lack of trust of uh, in the medical profession after many things over the last many, many years. And now we're about to dig into the work she's doing to expose details of the tyranny descending upon us. And now here is important information from today's news talk, TNT. Sometimes a car comes along that changes everything with innovations never thought possible and features that make you wonder, how did people survive without this? This is that time and this is that car. This is the world's first DWB. Equipped with transparent doors to eliminate reasonable suspicion, whatever that means. A 10 and 2 steering wheel that keeps hands visible at all times. We remove the glove box so there's no confusion about what the driver is reaching for. With a touch of a button, the ultrasonic biometric scanner displays the license and registration of the driver to ensure contactless exchange of information. With no trunk, nothing can be concealed, so therefore, there is nothing to search and seize. To ensure you will never be mistaken for breaking the speed limit, we've installed limited edition airless tires. And we remove the engine because, honestly, why risk it? DWB, the first vehicle of its kind, where the safety feature is the car itself. Listening to Bruce DeTorres on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. TNT is an independent global news talk station that does what others only say they do. TNT is a live radio and TV broadcaster that simply tells the truth 24 hours a day, seven days a week. No one in the world does what we do. Crisscrossing the globe, providing credible news and opinion all day and all night. In two and a half years, TNT has become a credible and exciting platform with brilliant hosts and staff. God bless the person who wrote that. I agree. It's a critical time, and we must continue to call out the misinformation and propaganda from mainstream media and their powerful sponsors. We are now appealing to our many friends and supporters around the world to go to tntradio.live and make a small donation to TNT while we seek the right investors to continue our important mission. Speaking of important missions, Dr. Cat, please continue. You just started, you just barely scratched the surface talking about the alarm that needs to be raised about the World Health Organization. Please continue about that. Thank you. So. The World Organization is simultaneously negotiating two documents, pandemic treaty and amendments to international health regulation. Um, really what they're trying to 
accomplish is change that relationship they have with member countries. As I said, they were used to be advisory organization. Now with these changes, the countries will have, have to comply. I always use this article as an example. There is article 18 in amendments to international health regulation. If there is some kind of outbreak somewhere, Director General can proclaim public health emergency of international concern, P-H-E-I-C. Once he does that, the country does not have to comply, does not have to agree. And once it's actually introduced, he can then introduce different um, ways of trying to manage it. And that has to do with the um, treatment options, diagnostic options, exam for the patient, uh, vaccines, uh, closing of the borders, um, limiting the trade into the area, isolation, and different things like that. The other things, there are different articles. I believe 44 has to do with censorship of people who speak differently than the narrative that comes from the World Health Organization. The member states would actually have to censor those, uh, you know, let's say it's physicians, and then you have you will encounter the same problem people are having right now where they're losing their licenses and things like that. There is a uh, need for surveillance, according to them, uh, and there is definitely danger of more gain-of-function type of experiments by sharing all this uh, data and pathogens around the world. Essentially, from the standpoint of the United States, if you read through the document, the amendments and the treaty, there's actually an assault on several of our amendments. It has to do with amendment, First Amendment, with Fourth Amendment, Tenth Amendment, and Fourteenth Amendment. Um, an assault, yeah, an assault on our constitutional rights. Hundred percent, an assault on our sovereignty, an assault on sovereignty of other nations, and it needs to be recognized. They're doing all this, you know, in in the name of trying to keep us safe. But I would say, first of all, they failed, and uh, they are the ones that actually are not keeping us safe. So um, the way that you can try to combat this, at least from the United States standpoint, it's important for the states to pass different legislation where uh, they specifically say that the state will not comply with the War Health Organization regulations mm. because the police power is actually the 10th Amendment, which means that the health care of the citizens goes to the state, not to the federal government. They're the ones in control of it. So that's one of the easy ways trying to bypass this uh, power grab that's happening. The other ways they are trying to pass some federal legislation, but as we all know, Congress is broken and that will never happen unless we change the leadership. I think it's important to make this an election issue so that we have our candidates actually state their position. Hmm. Uh, President Trump has stated his position. Uh, RFK Jr. has done the same. DeSantis mm -hmm. did it and Vivek when they were running. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think it's important for all of these, you know, candidates to declare where they stand. Mm -hmm. As far as the current administration is concerned, nothing will happen because they're the ones pushing for these amendments. So our HHS is actually the one that's writing most of these amendments and they are very much in favor of it. And um, the meeting for the World Health Organization is in May of this year, about the uh, 24th or 25th, I'm not sure the exact date, but towards the end. And by 
all indications, they will pass both of these documents and then we will have to deal with them. It's a it's a very, very urgent that more it Americans is. know exactly uh, this situation. Are there, uh, what are the most important resources that you invite people to look at at the websites of either of the two organizations you're involved with that, that you brought most to my attention, the globalhealthproject.org and globalcovidsummit.org. What do you steer people or invite people to find there? So there is some work on globalcovidsummit.org that we've written about, but some good places to start are sovereigntycoalition.org there are different align acts people can actually go there sign and will go directly directly to their representatives and then door to freedom.org is also mm -hmm. another good resource where all the documents most recent documents are there and mm -hmm. people can read through them mm -hmm. i think is that dr merrill nass's also yes. organization yeah I've, yes I've had many the, of us are yeah. helping with merrill and different uh things her and I actually came recently from Ireland, and then we went to Croatia in uh, December to testify in front of their parliaments, because what's happening is no one is realizing that the power to actually get rid of this is inside our own governments, inside our own parliaments and um, legislature. We do have ways of not allowing for this to happen in the United States. The treaty has to go to the Senate to get ratified. So it needs two-thirds of the vote. The important thing to recognize is, and for those who are on uh, Twitter, I recommend to actually follow Tedros, at least when he speaks about pandemic treaty. Um, they keep on changing the name because if it's an international treaty, it has to go to the Senate. But they're calling it an agreement, an accord. And it's not a treaty. It's just you know, an agreement yeah. between uh, countries and member states because they don't want it to go to the Senate. They don't want it to go to different, uh, yeah. you know, parliaments around the world where yeah. people may say no. I got a question for you. To get more people to recognize the danger of these protocols, agreements, I think people would have to recognize the harm of following the WHO for COVID over the last four years. And I think, unfortunately, the harms and injuries and deaths from the shots are going to slowly or quickly wake up more people who still believe in authority, still believe their government, still believe uh, the CDC, still believe the World Health Organization. but. Is that uh, fair to say? Is that the 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 red hot bullseye we should focus on? Is to and as and as horrible as it sounds, challenge people to look at the facts of how harmful everything the WHO mandated in the name of COVID since has caused so much harm. We cannot let it uh, have iron control over us going into the future. Is that a proper analysis of the situation? It is. I would say the world has kind of woken up to that a little bit because you see it in the uh, percentage of people who are uh, taking the booster. Mm -hmm. The percentage is extremely low. So people are recognizing 
You know, I recently tweeted and said, if you need to boost something over and over again, don't you think it's time to admit it doesn't work? You know, it's just common sense. You don't have to know medicine to actually come to that conclusion. And I think people are starting kind of, there may be, and I hate this word, like waking up from trance, but maybe they are. Because, you know, um, I would say that a lot of good people, the other side, let's call it that, did a good job. Because a lot of good people were afraid. They did what they thought was the best thing to do. They weren't trying to, you know, do anything bad. And they, they fell for it, for the lack of the better mm. word. Mm. And now they're seeing that the narrative was wrong. They lied to us. And people are starting to want uh, some kind of accountability. I think that's important. To give you a quick example, if you have a, a rash after amoxicillin, I will not give it to you again. So why did we allow physicians to get people to actually have a second and third vaccine after having an adverse reaction? We, we should have pushed so much harder than we had, and hopefully we'll learn that lesson. That, unfortunate, that, yes. And the example you just gave, I have asked doctors and nurses and scientists, what percentage of your colleagues have stood up like you, because I'm normally talking to folks like you, Dr. Cat, who have uh, rebelled against the insanity and have to speak the truth. What do you say about the numbers of doctors who administered the second and the third and the fourth shots? Uh, did they not, when, presumably knowing that the first one caused problems, these second thirds don't work. It's what do you say about the percentage? The I think it's an overwhelming majority of doctors who just followed orders and did what they were told and administered these things without barely without obviously trying to think for themselves, without without applying any critical thinking whatsoever. You know, it's hard to tell, but I agree with you. It's a large percentage, but that goes back to our previous conversation at the beginning of, you know, of this talk. That's because of the corporate practice of medicine. The doctors felt like they cannot do anything outside of the box that they're put in. And that's a shameful side of what has happened. It, what I did and what some of us did is not brave. It's really common sense. And I think um, we just need to return back to common sense. This has been one of the most exciting conversations I've had on this show, and I've been doing this for over a year, Dr. Cat, from the dpcfrontier.com, where folks can find physicians practicing the direct care primary care membership model, to the other resources, sovereigntycoalition.org, daughterfreedom.org, and your two globalhealthproject.org and globalcovidsummit.org. I really am grateful for your heart and soul, your very straightforward need to tell the truth to people and take care of people. And I look forward to following your work. Do you, and, I, and I'll dig into it on your subsec. We are we're running out of time here. Any last words, probably in about 10 seconds, doctor? No, thank you for having me. It was a it's pleasure. It's been a sincere pleasure. I will stay in touch with you. And this Thank is you. today's News Talk TNT.